Thanks for clicking play on this episode of PageCast as we wind back the clock to talk about the South African way of war. In 20 battles, historians Eva Kleinhans and David Katz explore South Africa's evolving way of war over 100 years. They trace the development of the Defence Forces doctrine and structure, uncovering historical continuity and lessons from past battles and operations. The book and this chat also highlight significant milestones, including their first deployment during the 1914 industrial strike, involvement in both world wars, large-scale cross-border operations during the border war, and the recent infamous Battle of Bangui. In this episode of PageCast, Ifa Tlenance and David Katz chat with historian Archie Henderson. Enjoy the chat. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Archie Henderson. I'm a journalist and uh, an aspirant writer and fascinated by military affairs. Two people who have been an enormous source of education and information to me are David Katz and Evert Kleinhans, whom I met before the war, after the war, I can't remember. But uh, they explained very complex battle situations to me in the past. Evert has guided me through the labyrinths of archives. So I'm indebted to both men, but enough about me. Let's talk to the two men who have brought out yet another book, 20 Battles. Congratulations, guys. We've spoken a little bit about this before, but hopefully I can drag some more information out of you this time. Your 20 Battles. You guys are so prolific. I mean, this is not your first book, but this is your first book together. So can you tell me why these 20 battles? Yeah, thanks, Archie, and um, thank you for, for talking to us this, this afternoon. Yeah, how did we decide on these 20 battles? Uh, I think that is, <laughs> that is quite a good question. So I think, first of all, David and I got together, and we, we wanted to sort of look at the evolution of South African warfare or South African way of war. And we decided to look at the period 1913 to 2013. So 1913 then being the first time that the Union Defence Force would have been called out for an operation for a deployment. And then we tried to basically look at some of the firsts. So the first deployment of the Defence Force, the first deployment during the First World War in the different campaigns, uh, German Southwest, German East, France and Flanders, and then the first interwar deployment. And so we sort of went through a hundred years worth of, of history. And of course, I think everybody, if you put two two separate military historians in the room, they might have chosen 20 different battles. So we, of course, had a specific rationale for doing this, but um, there was some method in the madness, a lot of madness, but some method as well. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you have a lot of arguments about which battles to put in and which to leave out? No, actually not. Surprisingly not. I must, I must say that we, we, we knew what we were looking for. Uh, a part of the criteria was that it, it should be uh, a first battle. Because the first battle tells something that other battles don't uh, uh, show. And it tests, the first battle tests and shows the efficacy of a military's doctrine. It tells a hell of a lot because when you look at a first battle against a brand new enemy or a brand new campaign, the military involved hasn't had a chance to assess and reassess their doctrine in the light of having actually undertaken a bit of warfare. So it says a lot about the training, the, 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 the period before the actual battle or the campaign. It tells a lot about the training, the doctrine there on those type of things. So those are the type of battles that we wanted to look at. So it would highlight the doctrine being followed by the Union Defence Force and the Defence Forces after that. Okay. So 
now we know the theme of your book. You stayed clear away from politics because every battle you've mentioned had a political element to it. Did you find that easy or difficult? Or in terms of what you were trying to achieve, the means of, of, of fighting, did that help? Yeah, I think um, previously when we chatted, uh, we spoke about the cold military lens that we sort of yeah. applied. And in doing so, it's often easy to it's easier to remove yourself from the from the political uh, aspects of things. Not to say that politics didn't have a role in these battles. Of course, they did. They always do. But we try to to steer well clear of that and rather focus on a proper sort of military operational history, looking at force design, structure, organization, doctrine, and how these things changed over this 100-year period, by then looking, of course, at different battles or operations. So we actively steered clear of uh, of the politics. David? Well, I think, first of all, I want, to, I want to introduce you to the concept of the three levels of war, the tactical, the operational, and the strategic. And politics lies in the strategic level of warfare, or the grand strategic level of warfare, let's put it that way. So we certainly steered, I don't say we steered clear, but our book was focused on the operational and tactical aspects of the battles that we examined. Can't totally steer clear of the politics because politics influences, and certainly in some of these battles, politics certainly influenced the course of the battle at the tactical and the operational level. But we certainly didn't go out to, to, to make political statements. We tried to steer clear of, of those type of statements, except for the fact of where they influenced the battle. And you'll see in some of the battles sitting on the border war that the politics had a clear determination on the outcome of some of, some, of, some of these battles. So we could not ignore it, not that we wanted to, but we, mm. we, we, we tried to stick to focusing on that tactical operational level. And then we did venture out into the strategic level on occasion when it affected. Obviously, it's going to, strategic level is always going to affect those two, two aspects. You could never totally divorce military operations from, from, from the political level. But, if you ask, uh, did we apply our personal politics? We tried not to, certainly. So we try to be as objective as possible and try to leave our personal politics out of the book totally. I think that comes across quite strikingly. You guys showed uh, an amazing dispassion in what you wrote about and how you selected things. So I want to go back and for the moment, let's leave the 1913 industrial strike out of it because I think your first actual military battle and the most recent one are such contrasts. Sandfontein. Why Sandfontein? It's in the middle of nowhere. And why the Battle of Bangui? It's also way out of our backyard. Well, let me let, let you ever take the Bangui side of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna just tell you quickly about Sandfontein. Sandfontein was part of a greater a greater plan that was constructed by Jan Smuts in the first phase of the German Southwest Africa campaign. The Battle of Sanfantin was supposed to be a coordinated drive by four different prongs that were going to envelop the Germans. So you had the seaborne operations on the German Southwest African coast, and then you would have the, the overland, uh, going over the Orange River, you'd have the overland uh, invasion, all working simultaneously to overwhelm the Germans. Needless to say, due to various different reasons, the South Africans weren't able to, to effect uh, two of the seaborne landings in time, and therefore their landings at Ludwitz came under extreme pressure and threatened by the Germans. 
And Smuts launched the Sanfantine operation in order to try and draw the Germans away from the vulnerable positions at Ludwigsburg. He intended for it to be a proper operational move with, with the full, with, uh, with Lucan's full battalion. And it turned out to be more of a reconnaissance type of operation at sort of company strength that was totally overwhelmed by the Germans. That's why Sanfantine. It's been misinterpreted by a lot of historians, some of the better known historians also as being a political decision, whatever. It was purely an operational decision that it wasn't able to come off. So that's why we put it in there, because it, not, not only that, but it was the first battle that the South Africans, the Union Defence Force, had with an external force. All the previous ones had been the internal force. The first time they had met a major first-class European power in, on the field of battle. Excellent. Yeah, I okay. think uh, to add to that, Bangui, I think the Central African Republic is such, it's a, it's a very interesting battle to sort of have a look at and um, it's a pity here that one sort of well it's a pity and a blessing in disguise that we didn't really speak about the politics behind it because I think that's a story for a whole different day but in terms of the South African National Defense Force and the deployment of of this defense force since 1994 there's only really a few markers on on the playing field Bulias the invasion of Lesotho being one of the major big first ones in 1998 and then, of course, the big one after that was Bangui because it captivated, you know, the public attention. It was in the media. It was in the newspapers. It was very important to look at that battle because the defense force was almost probably about – it was the new defense force was about 20 years old by the time Bangui happened. So by looking at these deployments post-1994, it gives a good idea of sort of where the defense force went in terms of force design, structure – organization doctrine so what were the continuities and the discontinuities and how did the south africans perform under very trying conditions in bangui you know so it's, i think the final word is, has not been written on bangui at all you know we we offered a what we could do from secondary sources because we don't have access to the primary archival material and i, I mean it must be available somewhere but I can bet my top dollar that it's still classified and it won't be declassified for a long period of time. So, yes, I think Sanfontein and Bangui, very interesting battles, two very different battles, but maybe not that different at all because uh, in both cases, the South Africans uh, fought well, but actually got a bit of a hiding as well. Great. They, they, they fought well in both cases. I think that comes through. But in Bangui, Weren't they left in the lurch a bit? There was no supporting arms. There was, there are these these big debates. I mean, or questions about it. They were. It was basically a company company plus strength, basically a parabat, and then uh, with some special forces, but with no heavy support weapons. Uh, no, I think the biggest mortars they had at their disposal was eighty one mil and a couple of heavier machine guns, but no adequate you know support. No air support. Really, no bigger artillery support that, of course, would have been a game changer in that specific situation. But that maybe wasn't really the uh, the priority of the mission. I mean, the fact that the guys fought well and defended Bangui itself was very good. But uh, I don't think that's really the reasons why they were there. But, of course, the politics um, often forces soldiers into very diff different, uh, difficult situations where they just have to make it work for them. Yes, I, I take your point about what is still in the classified archives could be very mm. revealing. Nevertheless, if you look at from 1913 to 2013, 
how has what you were searching for, how has that been shaped by personnel involved, equipment involved, weaponry developed? Has that changed the South African way of war at all? I mean, it must have, but how? That's that's a very interesting question. And certainly right from the outset on the formation of the Union Defence Force, there was a tension uh, between a British-style doctrine, colonial doctrine, and the former Boer Republican doctrine. So there was a tension about that. And Smuts and Boerter were quite keen to move over to uh, a more British-style system, a uh, more British-style doctrine, because they enjoyed the, the discipline. They found that the Republican forces were ill-disciplined. And, of course, they were on the losing side. So the losing side always looks to the winner to see why they won. And um, they were pretty happy with, with trying to come up with a British-style uh, army to start off with. And that was where the basis that the UDF was designed on. Uh, came along the rebellion and, uh, and, and, and the, the, first of all, the unrest of the Vidvatistrand, where they called out the rifle associations, which were basically just the Boer Republican forces in another format. And certainly the, during the rebellion, they again used the commando system. And slowly but surely, the UDF started to take on a, a flavor of the Boer Republican armies. In the second phase of the German Southwest African campaign, Certainly, Smuts and Boerter used the over, overwhelmingly for, 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 for the maneuver element, used the old Boer style Republican commandos and the same again in German East Africa. So you had those tensions right in the beginning of a military seeking to find its identity and swinging from the one way to the next. And you'll find, uh, even at Delville Wood, you'll find the Union Defense Force fighting a very much different type of war than was fought in Africa. And it wasn't a maneuver mm. war, it was a static war. It was manned by English, by English speaking South African army officers. It followed, it was forced to follow a static type warfare, more the British type of system. And you had those tensions in the First World War that came through into the interwar years. So we did find that in looking at every single one of these battles, we found that there was a struggle, a struggle to define what the South African doctrine was all about. It was usually a move back to the maneuver type system and then a, 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 one step forward, a step back. That type of thing throughout, very, very interesting. So after each battle, we could see that either the, the actual campaign or the battle advanced the military doctrine of maneuver, or it had no real effect, or it, in fact retarded it on many occasions. So it was very interesting to see how these various battles affected the military doctrine of the time. Yeah, I think um, maybe maybe just to add to that, innovation and change within uh, defense forces are, are often driven by personalities. And I think there are a number of important ones in the South African military history, specifically in this 100-year period, that, you know, that, that were driving change. I mean, Jack Collier, who was the, the chief of staff of the U- Union Defense Force at the end of the First World War, and maybe George Brink, and, and in the Second World War, you had Pinar, and, and these guys that were sort of pushing the parcel and the change. And then, you know, during the border war, there were guys like uh, Roland Fries and Tony Savides, and a whole bunch of other officers. And in the SNDF, there's guys like William Dixon, you know, the right man at the right time, almost on the spot, and Piet Fenter, and Michelle Silva, and a whole bunch of other people that were driving change and, you know, helping this sort of South African way of war along. I also think what was quite interesting is if you look at, if you take it from the First World War, if you consider the South African maneuverist way of fighting, in the First World War it was mounted infantry. By the Second World War in East Africa, the horse had been replaced with 
motorized infantry and the armored cars that arrived on the scene as well and later on with the tanks that was integrated in the border war the motorized infantry was sort of motorized but then they became mechanized as well with the rattles and the introduction thereof so constantly within the the the, the greater ambit of maneuver warfare you can also see how technology was changing in the defense force in terms of equipment etc and how this change was being driven along all the way in the second world war we we didn't always get a good press from the british generals they found we were unprepared possibly reluctant to fit into their style of battle but our armored cars in the western desert they seem to have won a lot of plaudits from the british well, certainly. I mean, the British removed the armored cars out of our structure in, in the Western Desert and mm-hmm. used them to make great use of them for reconnaissance purposes. We were very well equipped for that. And also the, the South African style of warfare was so suited to that sort of uh, self-starting, thinking off the top of your head without having to obey uh, orders from the top. That suited the South African way of war very, very much. The whole reconnaissance side of the armored cars thrived as a unit in the formation. I think it was even retained, if I'm not mistaken. It was retained after the South Africans were repatriated back to South Africa. I think some of the, some of the armored car guys uh, carried on th- through the, the British until they kicked the Axie out of, uh, out of Africa. So much so, so much were the British dependent on the African reconnaissance. So that was one of the success stories. But obviously these, these guys in the armored cars were halved off the South African structure. So when the South Africans deployed their motorized infantry, it was without the armored cars. They were used to working in conjunctions as a, as a combined arms force together with the armored cars. And now the British had taken them over, which was something the British liked to do. They liked to cherry pick formations that were fighting for them and cherry pick some of the, some of the guys out of there and, and, and place them within their own forces. Unfortunately, I mean, uh, it didn't work so well with the, with the South African infantry formations, their brigades having lost some of the fighting power through the armored cars, which were very, very successful. They had a very successful combined arms operation type warfare in East Africa, in Italian East Africa, where the South mm. Africans worked with armored cars and artillery as a combined arms force very, very successfully, which could have been carried through to the desert force, which unfortunately you know, just went by the wayside up there. The, yeah, but, uh, the, David touched on East Africa. That is your field. And, and you as a former armored officer... How did they, all of a sudden, in East Africa, I mean, they hadn't had any experience before. Armored cars were new. How Mm. was it that they adapted so quickly? I mean, I I think Dave already mentioned it a little bit, but uh, I think this sort of maneuver type war, I mean, it suited the South African psyche for mobile type operations. So East Africa, according to me, was warfare by trial and error because the South Africans sort of had to figure out, I mean, those first battles fought by Brink and his division in early 1941 when they invaded Ethiopia, that was sort of where the pieces of the puzzle came together in terms of combined arms warfare. They didn't have a lot of time to train for that, not not in the Union, but not in East Africa when they had arrived there. So it was sort of on the fly learning as you are fighting, which is mm-hmm. the most difficult place to actually learn because if you make the wrong decisions or you learn the wrong lessons, it can lead to uh, dire consequences. So warfare by trial and error. But I think the South Africans were fortunate in that they fought fought against the Italians that weren't really that – I mean, you could, couldn't compare them to the Germans sort of in the north or the, or the Italian forces in North Africa. In East Africa, it was largely 
Italian irregular regulars, Italian native troops, maybe some few colonial regiments running about as well. But I think the South Africans had time and uh, space to learn and to perfect the sort of art of combined arms warfare. But I mean, just to tie into the earlier point that you made with Dave now, even in East Africa, the British were already, you know, starting to pull at, at the sinews of how the South Africans were organized. And one of the South African brigades was already detached, Pinar and his guys. Mm-hmm. First South African brigade was detached and given to the 11th and 12th African divisions. And that was a big bone of contention for for George Brink. And, and he, I mean, he tried to get Smuts involved and petitioned to General Cunningham, who was a commander of the East African forces. So, so yes, but I think... The South, East Africa was very important because the South Africans had the time to learn and hone the sort of modern way of war at that at that period of time. Some the South Africans had used armored vehicles. It, in German South East Africa, they did feature. Yeah, uh, but it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't organically part of the. No, no, it was no, royal, no. It was. Yeah. I mean, it was a naval. It was a naval. Royal, royal, the royal Navy armored cars. Yeah. Yeah. But there was an institutional memory because it, it was manned by the Royal Navy Reserve, which had South Africans in it. But then again, in the rebellion, armored cars were used quite extensively. Uh, I mean, yeah, we can argue about that. I mean, it's cars with. Yeah. <laughs> it was a yeah, bunch yeah, of cars okay, but, yeah, but commissioned, but. The, but the concept yeah. was there. I don't think it was wholly new when they arrived in East Africa. It certainly wasn't. And one of the first um, – okay, well, that comes a little bit later. I mean, the South Africans, the South Africans just had a penchant for that type of warfare. They were one of the first to, to operate a fully combined tank uh, unit after the war, before the British had even done their little uh, experimental tank brigade. So yeah. you know, the South Africans were up there with armor. I think they, they enjoyed the whole aspect of armor and using it in conjunction with the motorized infantry. So those, those armor, armored cars that they used in the rebellion, uh, and up in German Southwest Africa, can they be compared in any way to the technicals that you see in the Sahel these days? Toyotas with uh, a big gun on the <laughs> no. back. <laughs> no. I think maybe, the, I think maybe the technicals would have given them a good hiding. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> they would have given them a proper hiding, yeah. I don't, I don't know, the, I don't know the specs of it, but I'll tell you, I think what's important, I mean, moving away from the, the technology is the doctrine behind it. You know, the doctrine mm-hmm. of using an armored car together with your mounted infantry, you know, and using it in a combined arms warfare, not worrying about, you know, the technical aspects of how good the armored car was. It was the beginnings of the combined arms thinking doctrine behind the, the, the Union Defense Force at that stage. I think that's what's important. And having established now the South African way of fighting, the combined arms because of the small population, having to think differently from the British especially – where was that applied most successfully in your 20 battles? Mm, that's a good question. So what is the most successful? I think, it, I think East Africa is a damn good example. I think it was I think yeah. Pinot was a Both great exponent yeah. of, 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 of maneuver, South African maneuver type warfare and combined arms warfare and the style of command, that mission command. Hmm. I think East Africa is a damn good example. I mean, I'm yeah. sure a couple of others will come to mind. But, I mean, if you're asking me whether Zenith of South African maneuvers type doctor, beside the border wars, let's not go there yet. But prior yeah. to the border wars, I believe Pinar maybe is, was the greatest exponent. Yeah, I think also, yeah, I would say East Africa, Second World War, definitely. I was going to ask you, who are the personalities that drove that doctrine in the Second World War? Well, for starters, I mean, if we talk East Africa – you would have to probably, I mean, you can't, you cannot, you have to include, 
uh, include Pinar, like Dave said. I mean, he was instrumental. And then, uh, well, George Brink, as a as a divisional commander before the Second World War, he had visited Europe. He had actually seen. He had visited the Germans. If I just get it right, the Germans, the Italians, and the British. He, and the French, he attended yeah. them. Yeah, and the French. He attended their maneuvers. So he had a pretty good idea of sort of what was happening. But these yeah, were also veterans. I, Brink, Brink, yeah. and Pinar were veterans of the First World War. Operating yeah. South Africans and mm. uh, being part of the German Southwest Africa and German East Africa campaigns. He, I think Pinar yeah. wasn't part of German East Africa. He went up. He was in the Sunusi. Middle East, uh, Palestine. Yeah, the, yeah, these were maneuvers in the First World War. They were mm. maneuvers then, and they took they took that doctrine with them into East Africa. And you, and you know, Archie, that's a it's a very important point to, if you actually start thinking about who these guys were, because mm-hmm. I've always wanted to have a sort of a crack at it and look at who were these senior officers in the first division, and actually go and look. But what was you know their wartime service and interwar sort of careers? Because this was the cream of the crop. This was the first South African division. So this included most of the permanent staff officers that there was, guys like Armstrong and Buchanan. And the the officer commandings of the various units. I mean, these were these were the guys. So yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting personalities out there. But I would definitely at the brigade level and the, the divisional level. Yeah, they had to do some breakthrough thinking there. I mean, things were new. Radio mm. was coming in. Aircraft was were coming in. Yep. Uh, yep. They had to think differently. Very much along the lines of, and we might jump ahead now to the border wars. To what people like Roland de Vries and others were yeah. having to rethink strategies, whereas before, from about 1966 onwards, the whole SADF changed dramatically. I think it's one of those tensions that we were talking about. This the Union Defence Force that emerged from Italy, Second World War, had become a very sort of cumbersome, armoured, conventional armoured division fighting an attritional style warfare in Italy with the terrain also affecting the way they fought. The tanks were used in support of, of the infantry. It, they were direct assaults rather than, than, than envelopments, that type of thing. And this is the type of doctrine that the South Africans came out with after the Second World War. So sort of then forgetting about their maneuvers routes. The maneuvers routes were put aside in Italy. This is what the South African Defense Force inherited in 1966 when the border war started they inherited this sort of conventional type thinking big battle mm. direct assault firepower type of mm. uh, type of doctrine which was the antithesis of the original maneuvers type of doctrine but that must have also been because the enemy they confronted at the time were not as organized as they later became yeah definitely i think um they said if in the in yeah. the 1960s if you trace that sort of the golden thread through to the 70s. Yeah. Um, of course, the nature of the enemy is also a big determinant. I mean, the type of mm-hmm. enemy you are fighting, it tells you a lot mm-hmm. after that first battle that Dave also spoke about. I mean, where are you going and what needs to sort of change? And I think if you talk about Operation Savannah and you contrast mm-hmm. that with the later mm-hmm. operations in, 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 in the late 80s, like uh, with uh, uh, Ra- yeah. uh, Operation Reindeer at Kasinga and then Pratia and these sort of big cross-border operations, a lot had changed even since 75 mm-hmm. until the early mm-hmm. 80s. That allowed the SNDF to conduct these large-scale maneuver-type operations. And, and I think importantly, Ever, just to add also, is that when, when we start off with the, with the SADF in the, first, in the first encounters in the Bush War, uh, mm. border war-type situation, 
South Africans were basically devoid. I know I'm overstating the case maybe, but they were devoid of the operational level of war. They didn't mm. give it much thought. And they certainly certainly started to get better at As the uh, border war progressed, they started to pay more and more attention to the operational level of war. So we saw yeah. that evolve also very interestingly. Yeah. David, you gave a very good explanation recently on the three levels of war. And you kind of like touched on it earlier. Won't you just go through it again? Uh, tactical, operational, strategic. I've got to rack my brains now, Archie. Uh, to try. No, no, no. You were very articulate. About it. <laughs> okay. I think it's important. You know, when we when we have a look at when we examine battles, I think we need to look at it at what we call the three levels of war: the tactical, the operational, and and the strategic level of war. We've alluded to what the strategic level is all about. The strategic level is where the grand where the grand strategy is planned. The the politics comes in. At that type of a level. The tactical level is where the actual battle is fought. I call it the event, where the skit and donner happens, where the bullets fly. The operational level of war is the process behind the whole thing. It's the series of tactical battles that are put in place in order to achieve your strategic aim. So we can look at the operational level as a process and the tactical level as an event where the action takes place. And I think, you know, if you can see it in those terms, you can sort of understand how to analyze a battle properly. You can find on many occasions that, that, that a power, let's have a look at the Americans in Vietnam. The Americans famously said they never lost a battle in Vietnam. I don't know how true that is, but they certainly won the majority of their battles. They certainly beat North Korea and the Viet Cong at the tactical level. They certainly outsmarted them and uh, they could bring more firepower to bear, etc. at the tactical level. Operationally, they was probably smarter, but yet they lost at the strategic level. They didn't get the politics right. They didn't have the right strategy. You can win all your battles at the tactical and the operational level. Same with the Germans. They had the same problem as the Americans. But at the end of the day, lose because you didn't get your strategic level right. British are brilliant at the strategic level. Absolutely brilliant. I can't remember the last war they lost. Um, and they're not that great at the tactical and the operational levels. They're not. The Germans, on the other hand, are brilliant at the tactical level. There are very, very few formations man for man, today even, that could take on a Wehrmacht unit back in 1940 and beat it. That's how good the Germans were at the tactical level. Operationally, they were just astounding. They were absolutely stunningly astounding. They ran rings around their enemy. But strategically, they made huge strategic errors that resulted in Stalingrad before the gates of Moscow. They made some atrocious decisions that lost them the war at the strategic level. So, I hope that puts it in a bit of perspective of where we're going. With That's that. interesting what you say about the British being superb at a strategic level. Was that Alan Brooke behind the brains behind it? And, and can you give an example or a few examples? I think, look, the British have always thought strategically. Their mm. armies have never been this huge continental army. And when they've had to muster that huge continental army, I mean, it's, it was a great pain to the British population. They are more of a police force. They were a policing force for the empire. The army structured on different things. It's, it's structured on discipline and regimental pride and all that type of thing. You know, a lot of the things that, that are not conducive to being great at the tactical and operational levels. Where the British were fantastic was concentrating on the empire, keeping the empire intact and policing the empire and having that thinking, big thinking. You know, they thought big. They were like a big corporation, like Bidvest, let's just say. They thought big. They acquired territory where they could and that type of thing. Germans didn't, were not a fay at that level. They believed that they were so superior at the tactical and the operational level that they could win any battle that came before them and that would take care of the strategic level. 
by winning all their battles and winning all their operations, then the strategic level would take care of itself, which proved not to be right. If you have a look at, at Rommel in North Africa, he was astounding. I mean, he performed maneuvers that are absolutely breathtaking. It's sitting manuals today. People try and emulate it. But strategically, he was bereft of any idea of how he was going to win that war. He was always on a hiding to nothing because he could never mm. beat the British logistically. He just couldn't do it at the end of the day. He was in denial that, uh, the whole time. So he looked great. I mean, he, it, it looked fantastic. It's beautiful to watch. It's poetry in motion, but it didn't win the war. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, if you look at uh, how the South African way of war has been fought over the hundred years, where did the South Africans really screw up? And where did they do well? Uh, Dave and I actually spoke about this a few times whilst we were writing the book. Because, I mean, if you look at the 20 battles as a whole, I mean, in most of them, it doesn't really go too well for the South Africans. I mean, not, not all of them are defeats, but uh, we do get a bit of a club every now and again mm -hmm. and manage to get ourselves out or whatever. Where it didn't go well, the one prime example is Chihusi in the Second World War. By looking at that battle in the small little hilltop town of Italy, it shows you how quickly it can go wrong if warp decisions are made, understrength units are deployed, there's no uh, armor or artillery support really, you know, poor tactical decision making. Chiusi is such a gemor, you know, everything goes wrong there and following the defeats at Tobruk, and at, well, City Resign to Brook, I mean, we're talking about what, about 15,000 South Africans already, POWs, lost their lives or whatever. And in Chiusi, there's about 10 or 13 South Africans that lose their lives. But it's such a, it's such a big event that it actually forces Smuts to, to deviate from a trip to the UK and actually go to Italy and see, well, what the hell happened? Because it had such a, I think they were so weary of casualties that that small event, I mean, in the bigger, the grander scale of the war, it was tiny. It didn't mean anything, but we really didn't do our best there. And South African troops lost their lives. Getting back to Chuisi, I mean, people don't know where that is. I know it's in Italy. We know it's in Italy. But there's a, there's a certain poignancy about that because it was fought around a church. Yeah, Chuisi, just for those who are not aware of it, it's probably about, a, I would say, I mean, thumb-sucking about probably 100 k's north of Rome. So it was when the South Africans advanced through Rome on the 6th of June, of course, which 6th of June is known for the invasion of Normandy, but actually at that stage, the South Africans were, you know, going full whack through Rome, advancing north. What makes Chihusi so interesting is that, it, that it's actually fought on the back end of the Battle of Cellino that was fought uh, maybe 11 days earlier, which was one of the biggest armoured engagements of the South Africans of the Second World War, the whole armoured brigade deployed. And then going up north, they, they sort of get stuck on this uh, Trasimino defensive line of the Germans. So, and the South Africans are told to advance at all costs. But, I mean, that's from the, the army commander going all the way down to the divisional commander. But on the divisional front, it's not that easy. It's not, you know, you can't just simply advance through a town if, if it's occupied. So I think Chusi, uh, yeah, Chusi is a... I'll say it again. We've used Shit Show for a different battle, I think, in the in the in the, the review you did for us the other day. But Chuisi, to for all intents and purposes, is actually a bit of a shit show. Poor reconnaissance, deployment of forces questionable, no interoperation between the different units on the actual ground, warp decision making, bad orders being given, an attack that occurs in the middle of the night without adequate you know support against a very strong fortified 
German hilltop town, and it actually all plays out in the church, where the, or the cinema and the church, and sort of this little square where the South Africans then hold themselves up in, and and you know it becomes quite a dire situation. The Germans knock holes through the walls with, a, I think it is a Tiger tank that was there, and they set fire to the place. And I mean, it's just it's not good. And those guys from the first city, Cape Town Highlanders, that hold out there. They did so under very trying circumstances. Not 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 a great show for the Union Defence Force. Yeah, I was going to ask you which units were involved, but it was First City and 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 Cape Town Highlanders, and uh, yeah, they, yeah, they got a bloody nose there. We come out of the Second World War, the UDF, still the UDF, and then huge changes don't happen. I mean, politically, yes, as as happened in the interwar years. There's a sort of a neglect of the defense force and then suddenly it has to reinvent itself almost in a way after Gulumbashi even before that in fact uh, you've got the militarists trying to push for a renewal and then of course when P.W. Buerta becomes minister Mm. of defense in 1966 it really takes off with this new bunch of generals Magnus Milan, Vili Lowe uh, Ian Gleeson and others. Was it a case of building up a strong military and then itching to pull the trigger, do you think, when it comes to northern Namibia especially? <laughs> okay, Dave. I see you sort of slugged back in your t- chair there. Yeah, look, I think a couple of important points that you've made there, Archie. I think, uh, yeah, as Dave mentioned before, we come out of the Second World War with the latest uh, equipment. Tanks, aircraft, the whole shebang. We're involved in Korea. Of course, the National Party comes to power. There's some uh, reorganization within the Defense Force that takes place. Uh, guys like Himstra, who had never served in the war, becomes the, what was he, the Commandant General. Uh, we spoke about it the other day at one of the book launches with the, the German chevrons as almost uh, mm-hmm. on the tunics. And the Defense Force goes through a bit of a change, I think, uh, organizationally. I think the biggest change comes sort of when they wanted to almost de-anglicize the defense force. You know, when they when we left the Commonwealth and a lot of the names in the defense force, I mean, we've seen it now. It still happens. I mean, these things, are uh, they don't happen in a vacuum. Big changes came about in the South African defense force and the character and the nature of the organization changed largely. But I think there were still uh, pockets of excellence within the defense force. And of course, I think Ungulumba, after Ungulumbashi, with the realization that, you know, I mean, the not the realization as such, the, I mean, there was already a crisis at hands within South Africa, but Ungulumbashi, in terms of Namibia, was an important moment because from then on out, I mean, that's acknowledging that there's a big problem, deploying military and police forces in conjunction to fight or to conduct the operation. And then, of course, when the Defence Force takes over border duties in the early 70s from the police, that signals a change in the approach of the government, uh, recognising that there's a big threat now and that the police can't deal with this and the Defence Force has to do it. And then going back to your point about uh, Berta, I think Berta is a very interesting figure because he's, he's one of these guys that, I would say, drives innovation at least or change in, in the Defence Force, whether he's a hawk, well, he's definitely not a dove. He's, he was definitely a hawk. But um, but I think the, the Defence Force benefited 
largely mm. from Boetze's, um presence as Minister of Defence. And he was a Minister of Defence for, sure, I don't know, what was it, probably 15 plus years, if not more. I think where the Defence Force was in the early 80s, in terms of the rattles and all these, you know, major arms deals and, you know, the equipment that came about was largely also, you know, thanks to guys like P.W. Boetze and these generals that you've mentioned, like Willy Lowe and Magnus Malan and Ian Gleeson and uh, Yanni Galdenais and all those likes that, 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 that came out through this period. Archie, you uh, even mentioned something over here. The, I want to talk a little bit about the pockets of excellence that South yes. Africa, uh, the, South Africa, the, the South African National Defence Forces in its various guises, the UDF, SADF, and SANDF, has always is very resilient and has always ma- managed to maintain pockets of excellence, no matter the adversity that it has to face due to budgetary constraints, interwar periods, disinterest, politics, whatever the situation is. I get a lot of questions. Do we still have it today? I get a lot of questions from people saying, do we still have a, a, a defense force? Even myself, lectured various colleges or whatever. There is so much excellence, more than even pockets of excellence. Highly resilient people that want to make a difference. And that's, I think that's also a, quite a, 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 a signature of what our defense forces have always been about. Pretty resilient in bad times and always being able to sort of come back uh, from very, very low points. And I'll tell you something. If we have a look at today, we, we experienced far lower points in the interwar years between 1919 and 1939. Union Defense Force was, was, was in much more disrepair than we are today. And it came back very, very strong when it, when it had to. So you're saying that in the Defense Force today, there is still that culture of we're not a political element. We are strictly military. We're, this, the country is in no danger of suffering a coup, say back in Sahel. I believe that. I believe there's been a lot of occasion for, for, for something like that to happen since 1994, and it hasn't happened. I believe, it's quite incredible actually, that, that, the, that the South African National Defence Force is not really a political animal. It fights for, for the leadership of the day, and it's proved so over the last couple of decades. I have no doubt about that. I think we're, there's a weakness. You always want a citizen force. You want a large citizen force. You want, you want an intake. You want conscription. Because it, it strengthens it strengthens the non politicalization I can't even say the word of the defense force. Once you've got civilians in there from all different types of backgrounds, mm. we don't have that today. But yeah, there are definitely pockets of excellence. Mm. There are people there that just want to be soldiers. They're not into really interested in the politics. They want to be soldiers. They want to defend the country. They want to go out there and do their best. Uh, a lot of I've, and I've we met can- a lot of excellent people that are still within the South African National Defence Force structure. Are you saying that we should have conscription again and that the budget should be increased? Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm not against conscription. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be for the SANDF. I don't think it would mm-hmm. do any harm for our youngsters to, to form some type of a public service for nine months or whatever. Mm. I think doctors are doing it now. They have to go and serve their year. They could become firemen or whatever the situation is. But I just I think... I think the idea of giving back to the country, you know, that year, in some mm-hmm. form or another of, of, of community service is just a great idea. And, I, uh, and, and the South African National Defense Force needs new young blood. And, and I tell you, there's no shortage of volunteers. I, I, I tell you that right now. You wouldn't even have to have conscription. If you opened it up, you would have, you would have a, a surge mm-hmm. of volunteers wanting to join, even for the universities. 
the young university students love to go and work on the weekends, become officers, and, and they give up all their weekends to become officers. But is there a danger with the defense budget being cut again and again that the defense force and the whole culture that it has will just disappear? Yeah, no, look, um, it's difficult. We find ourselves in a difficult situation. Our budget is under strain. Uh, I think of a, the vast majority of it's actually spent on, on, on personnel expenditure. But whenever th- there's trouble in the land or on the horizon, uh, whether it's mm-hmm. with natural disasters or, or, or unrest or internal unrest or whatever, the Defence Force is time and again called in to sort out all of these problems. I think it's a testament to the organisation and the resilience within the organisation to be able to still do all of these things with a limited budget, with the evident you know, problems that exist within the political spectrum of the country. The South Africans are doing a sterling job. The soldiers, they deployed to uh, northern Mozambique to fight the Islamist insurgency. They're doing a good job there under very difficult conditions. And they're still deploying to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, helping with the peacekeeping there. So I think with our limited resources that we have, we are doing, we are doing what we can. There's always room for improvement. But yes, we are doing what we can. There are such parallels now between 1919 to 1939, those interwar years, and where we mm-hmm. find ourselves now. The same mm. set challenges. I mean, not, not very different, I tell you. There are such parallels to be learned from. The, yeah. same, the same challenges that these guys faced in those interwar years are the challenges that we face now. Low budget, bad economy, the industrial military complex sort of uh, non, non-existent or falling to pieces. But yeah. there was always that hardcore, you know, there was that, there, there was that hardcore that, that was retained, that they were able to build on, that foundation that they were able to build on, certainly in 1939. And I mean, 1939, a lot of the veterans from the First World War had disappeared, et cetera, et cetera. But yet there was that hardcore of guys who were, they were, they managed to, to, to rebuild. And I think we, we do retain that to a certain extent. We do have challenges. In a lot of ways, those years were worse than we, we are now, certainly in the numbers, in the numerical side. Of things. Yeah. <laughs> but we certainly face challenges. I'm not painting a rosy picture about it. I think mm, we face a lot yeah. of challenges. I mean, our defense budget is below 1%. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, NATO now is, pushed, is, is trying to push their defense budgets up to 2% of, of GNP. So, yeah, we're in a difficult, difficult situation. Well, guys, at least we've got guys like you in the ivory towers and on the uh, – on the lecture circuit and in the trenches and in the libraries and, and so on. So um, so thank you very much, David and Evert. And there's a hell of a lot more about 20 battles in the book itself. It's published by Jonathan Ball. It's available at all good bookshops. And it's a damn fine read. That's what all I can say. Thank, thank you. you very much, Archie. Thank thanks, you, Archie. Thanks, thanks guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.